cat stopped in the middle of the path and then it stared straight at me. I was terrified. It all bring a tear to my eye thinking about it, just my emotion that I felt that day. I just froze. <laughs> didn't want to move because I didn't want it coming towards me or anything, something like that. You think, where the hell has that come from? Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Our guest from Derbyshire is Gareth. Gareth, welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Thanks for coming on, Gareth. And I know that you've been a long-term rural reporter in Derbyshire, and that's led you to have an interest in uh, big cats, amongst other things. Can we just have a quick briefing from you on the range of topics that your job and journalist role enables you to cover and where you see big cats relating to the wider scope of topics that you cover? Sure. As a reporter on a small newspaper, my role is probably as diverse as it gets for a journalist because it's everything from a church fate to a murder. I don't want to sound pretentious, but we have to be multi-talented. We have to cover every base. When you're rural, you cover a very large patch, geographically speaking, with obviously a lot of greenery and fields and things in it, but also an awful lot of people and a lot of different communities and a very diverse landscape and demographic. And topics I cover are diverse, but when we come back to big cats, it fits in in the sense that I have a fascination myself and you can't live in a rural area without crossing over with the topic from time to time. I've covered no end of stories and importantly I've I've also spoken to people about anecdotal evidence I suppose that, that hasn't turned into a story for one reason or another and I'm sure we'll cover those reasons but it's followed me through my career but it's also followed me through my life because I became interested in it before I started my career. I've been at this now for 17 and a half years it's one of those topics that I just think you can't ignore once you've got the countryside under your skin. Do you see it as a quirky, marginal subject, or do you see it as quite a relevant topic that needs to be returned to because people are reporting cats in good faith? From a professional point of view, I probably see it as both, I suppose. From a personal point of view, it's just 100% not quirky energy. I think it's very much a thing that you can't ignore and sort of sweep under the carpet because there's just too much evidence. From a professional point of view, we approach we approach things very differently. We have to be open-minded, we have to be really pragmatic, and we have to take each account on its merits. But at the same time, in the in the background with me, there's this personal fascination. And when I back when we used to work in newsrooms, we don't now. When we used to work in newsrooms, if there was ever a flurry of interest over a big cat story, I'd want to leap on it. I'd want to be the one that that covers it. I would generally get given the gig. It's led me down a lot of investigative paths and it's broadened my knowledge a little bit. I've really enjoyed indulging what I consider a bit of a passion to find out more about it. And I'd always read the local paper because I've always been fascinated by the local news industry. And I lived in an area that became very, very rich with sightings, kind of around the early 90s. The patch I moved to in 95 sort of the southwest of Derbyshire, was totally rich in sightings. It was a real hotbed. It probably made the national news a bit, but it became such a, a discussed topic and a, such an established topic 
that my local paper actually stopped doing front pages on it and just did a little column of what we call nibs, news in brief, a little column of just reports. It was just a weekly thing that that would be the file of stories that we'd, we'd gathered that week in the, in the paper. That was how common these sightings were and how established it was. It, it was no longer front page news. It was just a thing. That just absolutely enthralled me. The fact that I could be living among an area that is populated by some sort of big cat. 2005, I started working on the paper. By that time, I just had a really good general interest in the topic. And it had established possibly from the start with the Carstenton Beast and then from all the other little things that I'd seen online, because of course the internet started to become a thing by the time I got into the career. It was so much easier to explore things. And so it just, it just really broadened my interest. So this area in southwest Derbyshire, this was the Carsington area, was it the Carsington Beast? Yeah, Carsington Water is the last reservoir to have been built in the country um, 30 years ago. The reservoir is surrounded by gorgeous countryside. The sightings kicked off not long after there was a reported release of big cats from Ryber Castle, which is, as the crow flies, I don't know, probably about eight miles in, in Matlock. I'm sure you're aware of Ryber because it was a very well-established lynx zoo. Uh, they, they had a lot of European, well, they had a lot of different types of lynx. I think latterly it was mainly European, but there was reportedly a release and all of a sudden there's a big flurry of sightings. There was this release from Ryber and then not long after that, there was talk of a, a Carstenton beast. Now, reports that we got and they were so consistent, didn't really resemble a lynx. Carstenton beast series, that was the story that really just Certainly in the early 90s, probably all the way to the mid to late 90s, it was talked about. And then it just suddenly stopped. Flurries came back of different sightings in different places. Once we coined that phrase in the paper, the Carsonton Beast, then it became the Snellston Beast. Then there was another village that had a beast and things like that. And so this was a black panther, black leopard type of animal that was being reported, was it? That was the consistent thread that was woven through all the sightings, absolutely. It was always described as a, as a black cat. Lynx, obviously, as you know, is very different, and it would be very distinguishable if it was a lynx sighting. But in those days, it was a, it was a black cat, yeah. Thank you for reminding me about the Ryber Castle release, because I got a bit of inside information on that from an academic friend of mine, because he said that at the time he had a student that was working there on placement the student was able to come back to him and tell him actually what went on. And I think we'd safe to say all this now because the place is closed and a alleged story from the student. It's known that it was a release from animal activists, animal sort of rights activists, because uh, there was a, quite a collection of uh, breeding links that they had at that establishment. They got out and they were reported to be all recovered. And the student said they weren't all recovered one was found dead on a main road nearby after a, a few days, which you might expect, actually, if several get out and they're not literally very streetwise and savvy about living in the wild. But apparently not all of them were recovered. So there we are. We, we probably have had a, a breeding source from one release of a few lynx at that time. And as you say, lynx carried on getting reported in Derbyshire for many years. 100% I've heard a lot of lynx stories. And I don't think they bear any relation to the castle of the beast, just purely through dates and things. The village I lived in, from my doorstep, I could point to probably eight houses and, and say, yeah, he's seen a lynx, she's seen a lynx. You know, that farmer has seen several. 
links was was definitely a big thing, and not just around the time of the Ryber Castle incident, let's call it, but remained a big thing. At the same time, there were big cat reports, then there was the Carstenton Beast thing, and there was another flurry later on. It was just a strange area to live in, but a really, really fascinating place to sort of develop a fascination in a topic because there was so much of it going on, almost to the point where it was just a normality. You were just talking to people in, in the pub and you'd just be chatting about the latest big cat sighting at, at times. And it was fits and starts. But people weren't incredulous and people weren't scoffing. Not at all. No, not at all. It was almost a normality. You kind of had this realisation you were discussing a bit of an underground topic, you know. But realistically, people were so sure of what they'd seen and they could tell you every detail about where they'd seen it and how tall the dry stone wall was and, and all the rest of it. Just for people and listeners who don't know Derbyshire very well and think it's just the Peak District, upland, hilly, craggy, moorland bit, which of course is a lot of the mid to north part of Derbyshire and the start of the Pennine Way, but the south part of Derbyshire in the the English Midlands is actually quite pastoral, isn't it? Lowland agricultural, arable land as well, and fishing lakes. And I know that area because I, for several years, did a big cat information stand and got reports and swap notes with people at the Bushcraft Show, the national event, which had bushcraft um, practitioners and all manner of people visiting. And we got lots of sightings nationally because it was a national event. And I thought, well, this is rather ordinary countryside. Very nice that the setting is in, but I wasn't expecting any big cats from nearby in South Derbyshire where it was hosted, but there were brown fishing lakes and dairy farmers, you know, they were reporting big cats and most of them, I have to say, were pretty matter-of-fact about it and fairly tolerant of them. So South Derbyshire is, you know, not is not wild and remote, but it does have a history of big cat reports. Yeah, it completely does. I've worked with pretty much all the newspapers in the area through my career because I'm part of a large group and I cut my teeth on the, the Burton Mail in Burton-on-Trent. That covers a massive swathe of South Derbyshire. And you, you're right about the landscape and the kind of the makeup of the general area. I now live in, in what we class as the White Peak, which is just a southern tip of the Peak District. I can pretty much see the Peak District from my window. So I'm probably in a much more upland area, I think you'd call it. I mean, certainly the South Derbyshire bit it is still a landscape that could definitely sustain a wildcat of some sort. It's still rural enough. I mean, you've got the National Forest on your doorstep and things like that. But also just fishing lakes. I mean, I remember one report at the Bushcraft Show was just an early morning fisherman, and he said, never given the subject any thought, but he was there fishing, and suddenly the pigeons just all fluttered away and flushed away like crazy, and there was a mountain lion just patrolling through, coming out of cover on the edge of the water's edge, and just like they do, you know, stealthy and cautious, didn't know that the fisherman was there watching him. Yeah, I hadn't thought of fishing lakes. Could we hear, amongst the reports you've had, could we hear, you know, one or two really memorable ones that are full on and and well worth uh, listeners hearing from, if that's okay? I have had a personal encounter, but it's not something I ever really crow about because it was it was quite vague and it was quite a long way away. Well, we may as well start with that, though. Basically, I was walking my dog in a in a field that a farmer let me use just across more or less across the road from my house. And across the same road, there's a hill opposite with a large field, a fence along the back. I mean, it must have been probably two or three hundred metres away. I saw an animal, a black animal, walking along that fence line. Now, I know that village like the back of my hand or I certainly did at the time and I know that there are no people with big black dogs 
in that sort of corner of it. So I suppose the first thing you think of is it's a loose dog. Whose dog's got that far down the village? And then you think, well, it's not moving like a dog. You know, I've owned dogs all my life. You can you can spot them a mile off if it's a dog. It, it just wasn't doing that. Then I thought, this is a cat. But I know that dry stone wall. I've been in that field countless times. I know the people that own it. And I also know that there aren't really any black cats in the area. Otherwise, you'd see them. So then I thought, well, it's a bit too big for a black cat. I don't know of any black cats. And I thought, well, could this be my sighting? But it was just too far away, Rick. That was the problem. And I, of course, this is days before you had a phone in your pocket that would take a photo. So I've never really dwelled on that. It's always stuck in my mind. Yeah, a strong possibility. A strong possibility. But covering stories in, in the paper, I've been called out to all sorts of things, everything from footprints to scratched marks. A carcass in a tree was a good one. But also, I think one of the most memorable carcasses I went to was by a river. Um, a farmer rang me and said uh, he was troubled because he wanted me to report that it was a dog attack because obviously farmers are very keen most times of year to encourage people to be savvy about their dogs in in livestock fields and to emphasize the fact that this can happen but he and I were both discussing the excuse my dogs we're both discussing the fact that it might <laughs> it might not be a dog attack it was bearing a lot of hallmarks of a big cat there hadn't been many sightings around at the time, which sort of made me a bit sceptical. But then I spoke to a, a guy that I used to use as a contact at the time, who was a bit of a, an expert at the time. I haven't really heard of him since, but he, he taught me through some of the hallmarks I should be looking for. It was all boxes ticked, you know, the surgically clean cuts and the correct bits missing and all the other things you look around for. And then there were some things I'd forgotten to look out for, like any fur that was left on barbed wire. Any footprints, I, oh, stupidly, I didn't look for footprints in the mud. I just don't know to this day why. I think I was so enthralled by the fact that it could be a big cat attack. But we were very taxed what we put in the paper. And we had to sort of negotiate because he wanted it to be a, a message about dog attacks, even though he wasn't convinced himself. So that one, I've never forgotten. That was one of my most convincing, I wouldn't call it a personal experience, but I saw the carcass and having researched or sort of been told about what to look for on a, a big cat kill. It was spooky by the end of all that. Seeing it for real, you went and visited it for real, did you, and saw it in the flesh? Yeah, it was, it was a gory scene, and we never actually published it in the end. The pictures do exist somewhere. I've never found them, but it doesn't pass what editors call the breakfast test. So um, we didn't use the picture, but we did the story, and um, I managed to sneak in a bit of trivia and history about the Carstenton Beast and things like that, just to, just to engage people in the topic, I think to make it more of a story than it was. I was very conscious of the fact that every time you put a story in, you get more people come forward. And funnily enough, it did lead to the best report I'd ever had. It was on a links, actually. Didn't do a story on it because it happened too long ago. It was a good friend, really, just having a chat with me. But it was a farmer I knew really well. Very, very real respected farmer in the village. He was a fascinated naturalist as well. So he, he knew everything he needed to know about any type of wild animal, especially wild cats. And he was telling me about the time he was walking back from checking on his ewes and he came down the lane towards his farm and all of a sudden his dogs bolted. I think he had two sheepdogs with him, two collies, and they bolted, which was very unlike them. They ran to the base of a hedge a bit further up the road and there was the most incredible noise. He said it was like nothing he'd ever heard. He ran over to find out what was going on. 
and they'd cornered at the base of this hedge, it kind of in a ditch, and they cornered a lynx, and he pulled the dogs off, and there was this lynx sort of snarling at him, looking terrified. He'd seen the lynx before, and he'd seen it since. It was one of those things that they probably tell their, their friends about at the local market. He just kind of pretty much kept to himself, and then years later, he told me about this encounter. He wasn't telling me to put it in the paper and make a big song and dance about it. It was just a, a perfect description of, a, of an incident that happened to him. You don't forget a report like that. He was so close to it at that point where the dogs had been pulled off. There it was in the hedge box and terrified and snarling at him. Yes, and presumably had there just been one dog versus a lynx, the lynx would have had the upper hand but outnumbered. He did say actually that it was getting the better of his dogs, which he was worried about. They weren't injured, but he was just of the fact they certainly could have been. He knew it was a lynx straight away. And then, as I say, he'd already seen one in his fields anyway. But of course, this was kind of back in the days, not far off the Ryber Castle, the, the alleged Ryber Castle. Really. It kind of tied in with the fact that that could have been a Ryber lynx. I'm not sure. Very interesting. I think it's always interesting when there are dogs involved or other animals involved that are reacting to the cat. So it's more than just the human. Just going back to the carcasses and your point about having to formally declare it as report it as a suspected dog attack but it might not have been i think it it does work both ways on these carcass reports in the press that sometimes they might be billed as a big cat attack and it might not be it might have been dogs and sometimes it's the other way around and dogs get the blame and it would have been a cat and sometimes it's cats get the blame and it would have been a dog so i think it you know it can even itself up well, I guess actually any other reporter would have gone out to it and perhaps just taken a farmer's word that it was a dog attack. But because I'd had a fascination in the topic and because I was researching on it, and because actually at the time there'd been quite a few other sightings and reports, it had got me, I suppose, triggered is probably the right word there. And I was open-minded to the facts. And then when the farmer and I started discussing, I think it was me that opened the topic and he said, yeah, well, it, it could be a big cat. You know, they have been in the area and blah, blah, blah. And then we had to have this discussion stood by this rather pungent carcass. He didn't want to make too big a song and dance about it. He wanted to stay open-minded to the fact it was a dog attack because there had been dog attacks in the area, an obvious dog attack, because you, you know when it is. The reason he rang me was because he wanted to make sure there was a message hammered home about dog attacks. But I remember having this conversation with him and I was saying, look, I, I can't ignore the fact this has got different hallmarks to a dog attack. And you've called me out for one story. but People are really, really interested in this phenomenon, especially in this area. And he was a really lovely guy, and we had a, a nice chat with it. I think we struck a deal in the end, if I remember rightly, about how I was going to report it. That's what you do as a local reporter, because you build relationships with people. You're there all the time. Building trust with informants is a long-term thing, probably on any topic, but particularly on this topic. You, you, know, you might well get more information the more you're trusted and the more you treat the subject with some respect. The difference between a local reporter and a national reporter, a national reporter can arrive in an area where there's been a you know, big disaster or whatever. They can just plunder and pillage and get everything they can out of it in the shortest possible time they can and then just run off back to their office and probably never go there again. Whereas we need to take a much more gentle and measured approach and build a relationship because we've got to be there the next day and then the day after that and the day after that. It's the way I prefer to do it, to be honest. I'd rather do that than the gung-ho jump in and, and smash and grab approach yes and hype things up yeah yeah 
What proportion of reports have you had that you've been too sensitive or for whatever reason person and the informant has asked you not to report it but they wanted to tell you about it certainly Tristan said he gets that and I imagine you have done as well no end of them Rick honestly what tends to happen is you put a report in of some sort and then within the next few days people are ringing and say I don't want anything in the paper but I saw this that and the other and I think it validates it for them and you've discussed this so many times on your podcast Rick haven't you that it reassures them you put a good report in a nice credible one and it just makes people think, I saw the same thing, you know, and they, they want to talk to somebody about it. And they don't necessarily want to go public about it. Sometimes they do. And that's great. But if they don't, then they don't. And we'll, we'll try and talk them around. But I'm never going to twist somebody's arm, you know, um, and force them if they don't want to, because it's counterproductive. And have you found that the more emphatic some of the evidence, potential evidence is or the more consequences there could be from a report of a cat that the more likely it is that people want it kept quiet and kept under the radar because they're worried about the backlash for the area or the backlash for themselves and their status do you see that kind of relationship i suppose so i mean, I've, i suppose i'll be honest there and say i haven't really covered enough properly smoking gun type of reports they've mainly been i saw this in this field the core stories I did on this, I haven't done them for a while, were probably early 2010s and things like that. So video cameras are a bit rubbish and you weren't carrying them around. Phone cameras are pretty much useless. So you've really just got, I saw this and I saw that and, and I saw the other. And so we'd always do a little story on it if they allowed us. But we never really got that sort of front page thing for people to shy away from, I suppose, to have to cut it back. We've done similar stories. We've collated reports that we've had through Freedom of Information or that have been released since Big Cat sightings that have been released for the police. And, and they're just a list of little two-line sometimes reports that people have submitted. So I personally, barring the two really memorable ones that I've told you, I haven't really had anything that I would say is, is a proper be-all and end-all sighting or picture or anything like that. I've had all sorts sent. I've had videos sent. I've had pictures sent. And and even fairly recently, we, we do, as a regional group of papers, we do get quite a lot sent through. Now that people have got phones in their pockets and stuff, and, and obviously you you know as well as I do, there's, there's no end of sightings come through on a daily basis. But I think they're treated differently as stories now. We don't go into such deep analysis as I used to do because... Because the world's online now and it's just stories are out so much quicker. We don't sit on a story for half a week because we're on a weekly paper anymore. There's no investigative journalism. There's no feature type reporting. It's quick and snippety. There is in the sense that if a story's getting clicks, then resources will be thrown at it to oh, develop okay. it and yeah. investigate it further. But for, when we get a report, let's say we get a report of a, a big cat sighting, and maybe we get a fairly reasonably good picture, you know, a bit grainy, but it does look like it could represent a big cat. The first thing we'll do is get that out as quickly as possible before anybody else does. And then we'll see how it does. And it's bound to get shared quite widely, and it's bound to do quite well, because big cat stories always do. And then we will probably develop it. If it gets big enough, we'll start to ring the experts. I know I know our, our group has rung you a few times, Rick, and, and I'm sure other newsman outlets do, because we look for that next stage in the story. And the next stage is often, once we've let the readers have a think about what they might have seen and have a debate about it, 
then we'll start to look for the next line and that will be you know we ask an expert to corroborate it we perhaps then go back through some background and some history in the area and you know the more bites you can have that cherry the more hits you're going to get and it's all about clicks on the website nowadays and that's uh, the way news is now well can we go on to that last time we talked about clickbait with tristan and could we have your take on clickbait and how it plays out or not on the big cat front for reporting the local news industry is absolutely struggling not just because of a decline in print readership which is actually the profitable side of the business but because the digital side is competing with social media the biggest problem that we have the digital side of the industry has is that we rely so heavily on social media to get our engagement up because as soon as we put a story out the first thing we do is we share it on social media and so we're at the mercy of the algorithms our social media editors are constantly in courses to figure out what the latest quirk in this Facebook or TikTok or Twitter algorithm is so that we can try and, you know, one-up everybody else and be the one that gets to the top of that algorithm. But at the same time, they're always the ones in control of who clicks on our stories. And so actually, in an indirect way, in a very sinister way, these multi-multi-billion pound industries are in control of local journalism because they decide whether it's quality local journalism or essentially citizen journalism that makes it to the top of everybody's newsfeed. And so in another way, they're indirectly affecting our revenue. And so we have to shout pretty loud to get our voice out there. And I think that's why clickbait still happens in professional journalism. You won't meet a news editor that's proud of the fact it happens. We've got to be the voice that's out there on top if we're going to get our story clicked on. Ultimately, it's down to the pressure that's on a news editor because they see a story that a reporter's written and it's a really good story, very well researched and, you know, everything like that. But they've got to think so carefully about the headline because it can make or break that beautiful piece of work that that reporter spent hours on. And sometimes they'll get it wrong and they'll over-sensationalise it. They'll probably apply a bit of clickbait. When we bring this back to big cats, you know, they will possibly pull out a picture that sensationalizes the story or something, but it's down to that individual pressure. Every news editor in the land is under so much pressure to get clicks because clicks mean revenue. Like I say, it's nothing anybody's proud of. Well, I was going to come on to headlines because there's this issue that big cat reports are fascinating in their own right and don't necessarily need beast on the loose type headlines. That is the pressure of the game you're in, is it? to make it slightly more edgy and scary. So scary headlines win over a more subtle headlines like um, confident cat that's probably naturalising and very scared of humans and keeping out the way, seen again you know, for the second time in a month. You know, you're not going to have those kinds of more considered measured headlines in the days of clickbait and pressure to being noticed. In newspapers, we're looking at very short and snappy two or three deck headlines and then on digital stories they have to be within a certain number of words and there's only so much you can fit into those and we've got to hammer these headlines home because otherwise they're not going to get heard and i think in fairness to the people i work with you know we've got some brilliant headline writers and they do very very clever creative headline writers and avoiding clickbait but then i see so many times in the news industry headlines that i just cringe at because i think that's not quite correct or it's it's too too much like clickbait or it's too desperate 
And you, you only have to look at the comments on social media to see how slated they're getting because they've read the story and they've been let down. That's a, an evolution of how social media has shaped news output. In all of this scenario, where would you say newspapers and local media have influenced people's views? Do you feel that this sort of ongoing communication of big cat stories is influencing people? What kind of other feedback do you get? We're there to produce quality journalism and to actually analyse the topic properly and to provide that bit of background or that bit of analysis that that non-professionals might not bother doing because a lot of the other form of journalism that you'll see is just the sort of one-click wonder. They just they don't care. They just want to get the story out. They'll often copy and paste a lot of stuff and just put it out and just get the hits and off they go on to another topic. Genuine reporters, qualified journalists will live and breathe that topic for, it could be half an hour, it could be three or four days, it could be a couple of weeks. We get properly ingrained in it. And this is why we have such good general knowledge, because you can't not get totally sucked into a topic because you're going to have to report on it in an authoritative way. And with Big Cats, that was absolutely where I was with it. Not just because there was a personal fascination, but because I had a rural audience. I felt a huge responsibility to make sure I was writing in a way that would strike a chord with the people that live locally, that they understood that I understood the countryside. They might not be bothered about the fact there's a bit of intrigue and mystery about it. If there's a if there's a big cat in the area, they want to know. People have given me box files of local newspaper cuttings from different regions, and do you think this is the way for most people that they encounter the subject, actually? I know people in Gloucestershire, I've, I've given talks and people have come up to me and said, we know that people scoff at big cat reports in the papers, in the comments, but we and we know other people love to look out for them. This ongoing legacy that local media reporting has on the subject does have some influence because it draws people in and it might slowly influence people to become more aware and attuned to the fact that it might be real. Yeah, I agree. And to put that into context, we get fed live statistics of how our stories are doing online every second we can keep an eye on them if we put out a big cat story you can be fairly sure that will be doing better than a house burglary or maybe even a a fire at an industrial building somewhere you can be pretty sure the big cat will do better that's how we know that a it's worth exploring further and going into deeper possibly how some editors know it's worth having it up a bit people are really interested in it And how we know that it's a topic that is going to always be good for us. If we get a phone call and and somebody says we've got a big cat sighting, you never stop having your heart racing a bit because you think, yeah, I've got a really good story. Because it's just one of those stories that will always get good engagement. These days, actually, almost every report that wants to get some coverage does so. There's no worry about fatigue on the subject, whereas there was in the past. But again, the times are changing, aren't they, as you're saying? Nowadays, journalists are just thinking, okay, this is a good one, and I'm going to get it through the news desk, and it'll be published hopefully today. Let's get it out there as quickly as possible. It's not measured by where it is in the paper now, as in whether it's the front page or a little nib on page seven. It's now measured at how well it does on that stats machine. And actually, that's a different way of looking at the news agenda, because it's down to now not where somebody thinks it should be in the paper. It's down to how people react to it. And don't forget, we've got a bigger audience now. Now that stuff goes straight on social media and now that it's shared, you know, a newspaper in Derby, my local regional newspaper, their story could go absolutely everywhere across the world. 
Now, in the days of newspapers, we knew it was just going to hit 70,000, 80,000 people in a city and probably go no further than that. But now we're, we're actually all working on a national basis or an international basis, come to think of it. Yes, and the segment of the audience, whatever it is, whether it's big cats or anything, has got Facebook groups and TikTok groups and whatever on that particular generic topic. So there's, you've got that segment of people as well. It quickly bounces around all those specialist groups. Uh, in fact, to be fair, we, of, we often feed those to those specialist groups. It's one of the, the due diligence things a reporter will go through to, to get their story hitting the high notes because they're all on targets. They will seek out these specialist groups and make sure they've seen them. We're not necessarily working on a local basis anymore. Mercifully, I still work in print. But from a digital point of view, the reporters are, are constantly keeping an eye on the next viral story. There's another important factor. Any story you work on that you think this could go viral, and big cats are always a candidate for that, especially if it's you know if you've got really good video footage. Video is everything now. If you've just got a really good picture, it could go viral, and then that's your target sorted for that month. And of course, the journalist isn't that bothered about how credible the photo is. It's whether it's a talking point type photo, I guess, because a lot of these photos and videos are fifty-fifty. That's actually a really good thing to touch on because. Speaking as a journalist, and I've worked with a lot of junior reporters who are the sort of people that will, will lap this stuff up, you'll get your photo. It might look like a bin liner in a field, but there's a question over the fact there have been big cat sightings in the area and we've got some background to draw on. And, and this witness that sent it to us is very enthusiastic about the fact they think it's a big cat. So we've got everything we need to put it out there and let people decide for themselves. It's kind of not up to us to say whether it is or it isn't. You can do a headline to say, reader thinks this is a big cat you know and then it's up to everybody else to have that debate now if that story is getting some good reaction and it's not being completely dismissed which is often the case but if it's if it's one of those stories that's starting to get picked up by specialist groups or it's really going viral then we'll take the next step on it and we'll, we'll invest a bit more time into it and then we'll take it to experts we'll explore more lines with it and you may see the same picture appear in five or six different stories and that's because it's doing well. And that's probably because it's a, a good photo or a good thing. It doesn't kind of matter to start with because we want to get the story out there for people to have the first stab at and gauge the reaction from there on. Sometimes we'll get a really weak photo, but it's still worth a story. It's still worth putting out there. We probably don't think it's going to do very well, but we kind of leave it up to the readers to, to make that decision for us. And of course, you then, and the specialist groups and the Big Cats ones would be an example, you do get a lot of criticism and irritation because they're thinking, oh gosh, you know, what rubbish reporting that, you know, this is being seen as a potential Big Cat and it's not doing the subject justice. But of course, you've got a different agenda to the specialist groups on the subject. We have, yeah. And you, you, you see people say, oh, this isn't news. This is just a cow or whatever. But what they don't realise is what news actually is. To me, a news story is something that a thousand people will click on or 10,000 people will click on or maybe a hundred thousand people will click on. And we can quite happily do a, a big cat story. And if it goes viral, a hundred thousand people will click on it. That's good revenue for our company. But actually, that's really big kudos to that reporter and, and you know, their target's sorted and they've got a pat on the back at the end of the day. It might not seem like news to people in the, in the conventional, traditional sense, but if it hits a hundred thousand people in, in a couple of days, then that is news. That's, that's exactly what we do. We engage people. Well, I think it's very important that we keep our local media and local newspaper reporting as, as long as possible. I know you're saying there's all these pressures. So if Big Cats can help do that by bringing in some revenue, 
a journalist's first thought is never for the revenue. It's, it's about the number of people that we can engage. And, and we, we get a real big kick out of seeing those number of, of clicks on our story. You'll never lose that. I've been in it 17 and a half years. It still excites me when I see a, a story go viral or hit a lot of people. Or When I walk into a pub and people are talking about my story, there's, you don't get any better than that as a journalist. That's just perfect. And of course, a big cat sighting will always trigger that sort of response. It will always be the sort of thing that people are talking about over a breakfast table as they're sitting and reading the paper. It's always going to be a topic that we're always going to follow really closely. And I make no apology for that. But don't ever say it's not news because 100% absolutely is. What about attitudes? Clearly, you can gauge attitudes and people you've directly spoken to and who have been informants and reporters to you. But are you able to gauge attitudes of people's tolerance or intrigue or fascination or concerns and fears? Is there any way as journalists you can judge attitudes of people locally? Well, the, f- the first thing I would advise any new reporter is not to read comments on Facebook because you'll very, very quickly be demoralised in your job, any any social media comments. But actually, when you get out there, because I'm in a fortunate position, I'm in print and, and I live in the town I work in and I can get out there and talk to people about the stories I'm putting out there. And so I haven't done a big cat story for a while, but I know if I did, I'd be able to sit there and talk to people and and yeah, I'd be able to quite quickly figure out what their thoughts are on a thing. and. I mean, any good journalist should have his finger on the pulse of what makes their patch tick and what what they find interesting. So I think people's attitudes are very easy to come by in my part of the profession. Do you sense that people are are tolerant and positive about big cats from from your reporting or, or is it too difficult to know? I'm constantly heartened, really, about how tolerant and thoughtful people are about big cats. They don't sort of just think, oh horrible large savage carnivore on the loose that's causing havoc in the countryside they think it's a much more subtle issue actually are you able to gauge anything like that from your feedback i think you're absolutely right i mean you do come across farmers that are taking it very seriously because they've they've just spent a lot of money on stock and they're worried about that but actually generally i can't say i've ever and i've spoken to so many people especially sort of off the record because you speak to a lot more off the record than you do on let's be honest but I've spoken to so many people that, yeah, they're not bothered by it. They're not scared of it. You know, they're not going to keep their children in because there's been a big cat sighting in the village. I've heard you talk on your podcast about the different behaviours of British wild cats compared to wild cats in their natural habitat. Mind you, that is speculation, of course. Oh, it is. It is something that we, we've proposed, isn't it, I suppose? I think we see them as a benign force, really. And I'm, I think you'd probably agree with that, that we're not afraid of the topic. We find it fascinating, but nobody goes out there thinking, oh my, my goodness, I must take some mace or something because I think I'm going to encounter a big cat. I think for most of us, and certainly a lot of the people I've talked to, if they saw one, they would be absolutely fascinated by it. There'd definitely be an element of fear, but we'd, we'd all be just so, we'd just feel so privileged that we've seen something in the wild. And maybe that's just a, a symptom of being a rural reporter in a very rural patch. Maybe it'd be different for city folk going out in the countryside. I can only take it from a rural perspective, Rick, that's the thing. And I think I haven't come across anybody that would have any prejudice against them or want to see them all shot or anything like that. I do speak to farmers, I do speak to gamekeepers, and obviously they've got commercial interests. And I'm sure there are people that would take a different view if it was having an economic impact on their lives. But then that's just part and parcel of living in the countryside. That would be the same with any apex predator if we actually did have 
apex predators living naturally among us. And you have to discriminate. They're not all going to be acting exactly the same in every situation. So maybe that we just have to be flexible in our attitude depending on the situation and circumstance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to get on the fact that you won't get told everything that's going on. And, and, you know, I know stuff that's going on in Derbyshire that hasn't made the press. And I think it would probably send the subject backwards and our potential chances of getting more and better evidence backwards if it was in the press at the moment. Press could get people stirred up in an area and foul up people's chances of investigating better. So it's a fairly simple relationship. And you know, at the end of the day, if, if more evidence comes forward, there will eventually be media stories. So there's a bit of a wait, perhaps, and being patient pays, perhaps. But I guess to some extent, it must be a bit frustrating as a journalist, as a media person, when you know stuff's going on, but you're not going to be told because it's sensitive and because there's a long-term issue from researching it. Keeping a powder dry as a researcher and an investigator is the best thing. You get that, hopefully. Yeah, 100%. It's going to always be the difference, isn't it? When If people come to you at a show or if they, you know, they see you in the street and, and recognise you, then they're going to be talking to you. When they're talking to a journalist they're conscious of the fact that they're essentially talking to thousands of thousands of people. And I always say to people, you know, don't tell me something if you wouldn't put it on a lamppost, because actually, if we're going to talk on the record, you've got to understand that, you know, it might be you and me having a conversation, but I'm representing a massive audience. I think that's part of the skill of a rural reporter is to build, and, and we've talked about this before, you've talked to Tristan about this, is to build that level of trust in people that they can tell you stuff off the record that will give you sufficient background to get a big enough understanding of the topic to then write a story that you can agree on with them about the boundaries that you're going to cross and not cross. And sometimes, actually, they'll just want to chat to you and you'll get a phone call from somebody who says, I don't want this in the paper. But, and you've just kind of got to give them their time because actually, to me, it builds a picture. You know, I might not get anything out of that half an hour phone call and it might feel like a waste of time. And I'm sure there'll be editors that will have a go at me for wasting all that time. But to me, it does build that picture. And, and you've then got a mental map of where things have happened and you can start to build patterns and things like that. And so when the next call comes along, you can relate it to that bit of background. And that might be the one that says, yeah, I'm happy to do a story because I want to make it awareness or something. People approach it. Everybody approaches it differently. Some people are embarrassed to tell you. Some people will only confide in you in the pub or something, you know, so... As I say, I think that's really what a reporter has to master is that skill of building people's trust and negotiating with them as to what they want you to publish and what they don't want you to publish and what you can say from a story. And in the end, evaluating whether you've got anything left and whether it's worth pursuing the story. Playing it long term, you'll get privileged information or you'll get decent information if somebody builds a case and they are ready to discuss it with the media. Playing it long-term is part of your professional style, I suppose. Yeah, softly, softly is usually the best the best way to do it because you don't want to go in all guns blazing like some reporters might do and, and spook them. You're just going to say, right, okay, we've had this chat. Go away, have a think about it. I'll come back to you in a few days and then we'll explore it a bit further. And you build that level of trust, you build a relationship, and then they know that, yes, you might be writing a story and they might be a bit uncomfortable with that, but they've got that level of reassurance that you're going to approach it in a responsible and sensible manner and not hype it up and sensationalise it. And I think that's the advantage that a rural reporter has because they know that you empathise with the topic and the area and their specific issue. They know that 
that you're going to approach it in a sensible manner. You need to be upfront with them about how it might be handled because, of course, once it goes away from our computer and it goes into the editorial system, it's then at the mercy of a sub-editor and then an editor to dress it up and design it and, and turn it into a story and put whatever picture they want with it and so on and so forth. So you've got to be frank and honest with people about the fact that my story will read in every dot and comma in a responsible way. If you're not honest with them, you're only setting yourself up for a fall because you're just going to angry phone call at the end of it and they'll never speak to you again and then they'll go and tell other people not to speak to you. Witnesses that uh, come forward to local media about Big Cat reports often do not realise the extent of the scoffing they might get and the ridicule they might get in the comment section underneath the story. And, of course, the comment section may not be representative at all of how people out there are thinking about it, because I think a lot of people who are open-minded about the subject or are positive about the subject are not so minded to comment positively and say, yeah, good on for that witness, you know, well said, that needed saying. But it's very easy for the scoffers, and I think that this happens on all kinds of topics. People nitpick and make negative comments very easily. People can often regret being a witness in a local paper, unfortunately, for a big cat. It's keyboard warriors, isn't it, Rick? I mean, it's, it's, that's the term we use. And our comment sections, and certainly the comments on social media, are a dark and muddy place. They really are. I think you're absolutely right that people don't necessarily see that coming. And we, the number of times we've had phone calls from desperate people saying, you need to take this story down because I'm just getting absolutely hammered. And you know, what can you do? Your editor will take a very dim view of taking a story down if it's legally sound and factually correct. There's just no reason for us to do it. But then you've got this person potentially even in tears on the end of the phone because they get ripped to pieces. That's not really an example I'd apply to big cats. I think, you know, people do get a bit of stick if they speak out in a big cat story. But even then, they've made that mental leap of coming to you, probably in the knowledge that they're going to get that. But they've made that decision themselves anyway, that they're going to go public. I do meet a few people who, who say they regret it. I think that's because they probably came into it a little bit more naive. They hadn't seen the past range of derogatory and spiteful stuff that does crop up, unfortunately. Nowadays, of course, they don't know how far it's going to go because they might think they're talking to a local reporter on a little local paper, but it's, it's potentially, well, it pretty much definitely is going to go online. And then as soon as it's online, it could go everywhere, literally everywhere. It could be in front of millions of eyes. It has made it harder for us now because it's harder for people to put that level of faith in as if they know it's going to just not stick within the boundaries of a local newspaper where they probably know 10% of the readership anyway because it's just a little community newspaper. But that's made people more hesitant to come forward. And also I've noticed people can be just quoted. If they're putting a report on a local Facebook, it might be a village Facebook group nothing that was meant to be in the media itself. But without their permission, they can have their comment reproduced in a local press and it might then go nationally. And all they did was put it innocently on a Facebook group and suddenly it's cascaded well beyond what they ever expected. Is that legal and responsible, is it? It's legal if it's done correctly. There are ways of doing something like that. The first thing I would want to do, regardless of whether we could or we couldn't, is contact the person directly. And, and if they say, oh, I don't really want to put anything on, I say, well, you, you've put it out there already and look how, look how much it's being spread. Wouldn't it be better if we then did a responsibly written story and set the facts straight before the Chinese whispers begin? There's lots of ways you can approach that and it does depend on the circumstances. But actually, I think people just get 
surprised by how quickly things can go viral and out of their control if they just put something in the public domain. And that's not necessarily something that I think the news industry is guilty of because we're, we tend to be more careful with that. I think that's that's a social media issue now nowadays. That, that Nobody in social media cares about copyright. They'll quickly pillage photos and copy text and things like that. And off it goes. Copyrights have become so watered down, but it's still something we have to watch out for. We're constantly being told by our bosses, we've got this copyright issue or that copyright issue. Don't do this again. Don't do that again. Because it can get costly for you, of course, if you've got to pay out to somebody who makes a claim. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Can we just have a couple of reports that I want to relay to yourself and listeners? Because they come from Derbyshire and they haven't been in the press. And I'm not going to give too many details away. The first one, actually, I think is going to be on a TV programme from America in the summer because this programme wanted to do a Big Cat episode from Britain and one of the areas they selected was Derbyshire because they'd noticed there were things going on in Derbyshire. Back to your point about, you know, things can feed on, media can go national and international in different ways. A couple of Derbyshire examples are going to be on this American TV program, I think, in the summer. And one of them is a report of somebody who was walking to the crash test site, which is this plane crash wreckage. in, And is that in the sort of northern part of the High Peak area? Winklow, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I can't remember what it's called now, but um, it is very, very north, I would, I would say. I actually been talking to my brother today about we keep meaning to go and see that. But yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Well, this guy was, he thinks he's probably the last person back from it in the day. And a typical time, twilight getting dusk, he was just sort of resting for a drink or something at a craggy bit on his return from it. And turned round and there was a, a puma, a mountain lion, right by him and his wife. And they were obviously absolutely startled. I don't think they knew anything about the subject. And for me, that was an interesting one because I quite often don't think that these cats are going to be in the absolute wild open countryside where there isn't much cover it's very barren yeah yeah exactly i don't think they like barren landscapes that much because they need scrub and cover to ambush deer and they need to follow little valleys for water sources and, and woodland niches and valleys and things so there it was you know and uh, left him alone and he was obviously very scared but there wasn't a sort of scary outcome very credible report and his reaction very emotional because it was so close up. It's one of those things where it's so close up, you know, it couldn't have been a mistake. I always think those kinds of witnesses are either, it's truth or lie. Yeah. Again, you would have seen that as a journalist. So that was very interesting. We're seeing that on TV, if, if that one gets syndicated or replayed. And obviously an ex-military guy at a sort of military American plane crash site. So that, that's why it played to an American audience, perhaps. So, Yeah. And the other one relates to what we covered on the podcast last autumn when we had Don from Derbyshire. He's got thermal cameras and he's filming. Oh, yes. This cat seems to be foraging in the evenings and spending you know, quite a bit of yeah. time just foraging for small prey items. And we don't know to what extent they do because not many people are able to see them for extended periods like Don has been with, with this open area he's had access to with this thermal camera doing the business. And I have to say that beyond what's happened in episode 84 when we had the, some of the footage and him discussing it, he's got some more and uh, we'll be considering 
how we relay that in the future with him, because it is significant footage and it's made him actually upgrade his thermal camera. He just realised it's so difficult to get close enough because you're getting this middle distance footage and you want to see it a bit more clearly, especially if it's a misty, if there's any sort of um, dampness in the evening atmosphere, you get a bit of a loss of clarity with the thermal imagery. Yes. Based on what's happened more recently, he just sort of upgraded and spent even more money on these expensive thermal cameras. So, But we'll get more from him at some stage in the future on the podcast, and it will be very, very interesting to hear from him. And we'll see that some of the snippets of the footage. But what we did have, he mentioned on the episode that he did hear what he was very sure of was female puma in heat calling, which is like a woman in distress type call. And so he mentioned that this was why he thought what he'd been watching was potentially puma, not a black leopard type cat, black panther type cat, but a, a tan coloured puma. Now, after that episode came out, and after some reports in the Derbyshire press, an email came through, and this email reported a sighting of a cat, a tan coloured puma like cat, 1.9 miles from where Don had been filming. And I'll read out the email. It would have been the same week that Don heard that Puma-like call. So here's the email. So, hi, Rick. I came across your name in a newspaper article recently and wanted to reach out to you to let you know about a possible sighting I had in Derbyshire. It was about three weeks ago in the vicinity of such and such a road. I'm not going to give away the location. It was about 4pm. I was parked in a car park next to a large wooded area. As I turned to check mirrors, I noticed out of the window a large cat, brown stroke tan, faint dark stripes on tail, walking next to the car park towards the wooded area. It was about the size of a medium-sized Dalmatian. It took a minute for my mind to wrap around what I had seen. In all honesty, I was quite shaken by it, as it was so unexpected. Plus, my child participates in an activity very close by, so I'm not keen on the idea of massive unidentified cats wandering around! Exclamation mark. I'm relatively new to the area, and it felt a bit ridiculous, but I mentioned it to a local friend who said his friend, a very serious woman not prone to make-believe, had had a similar experience a few years ago. I don't know whether this made me feel better or worse, to be honest but it did give me some reassurance in believing my eyes. Anyway, I wanted to report this to you so it is registered and for your interest. So that was really helpful, a bit of, of validation perhaps, I'm not saying it definitely proves Don's cat is a puma, but 1.9 miles away in the same week that he heard a puma-like noise and was filming, some of that thermal footage, very, very helpful. Yeah, well... It's just so difficult that we have to do this kind of investigation without upsetting the apple cart, isn't it? I mean, that's part of the difficulty of the subject. It's difficult to get the resources to do it properly. I mean, somebody investing, you know, literally thousands of pounds in a thermal camera, having to be fairly cautious about how they get permission from the landowner and who they tell that they're filming or not. Because we, we actually had got somebody, a podcast listener, with resources and equipment offering to help Don. And we decided, as much as that was a terrific offer, it was actually best if Don just kept low-key and just kept on himself rather than other people disturb the area. And, of course, it could also disturb the animal itself, not just about local people, but the animal itself. Which has got to be a consideration, hasn't it? Absolutely. 
It just shows you how difficult it is to, to research the subject and bring interesting material to the table so people can learn about it. Frustrating when, when you think we've been, not me personally, but so many people, including yourself, have been studying this phenomenon for such a long time and you've gathered so much actually really strong evidence. Does it feel like you've never sort of found that smoking gun? Well, I think as we've said on the podcast, people who do keep it quiet because they, they're worried about the rebound. Yeah. And also maybe just one isolated bit of critical information isn't necessarily going to explain the full picture because, say, get a black panther definitively reported in one region doesn't mean to say there's going to be, if that was in Scotland, doesn't mean to say there was going to be one in southeast England. So I think you've got that, you know, it's the whole picture over time and geographically. It does make one wonder what what would change the, the direction of the topic and turn it into something that is part of the national consciousness. It makes me wonder if it's something ever would, to be honest, or whether it's just going to continue to be something we sort of talk about in the background and people are shy about coming forward with and so on. Even, say, if one a dead one on the road was admitted to, again, that's just one in isolation. You're never going to know how many... It's going to prove that there was one out there and it's very vivid because I think part of the issue is a lot of the material that does come to the fore is not... It may, it may be real, but it's not influential real. It's not really vivid. I mean, I can show things to my other half and I like her as a yardstick because she'll accept something's real that I show her, but she's not. It sort of doesn't make it palpable and tangible yeah. to the extent yeah. where she thinks, "Oh yeah, you know." And I like that reaction because I think that is how you know a lot of people react. So it's very difficult to get those absolutely classic, perfect pictures and definitive DNA results from things, even though we see a deer kill and an expert in. Leopards from South Africa will say, yeah, that's exactly how an impala would be after two days we found in the wild when a leopard had it, you know, so, so we can get that. But to go to the extra mile and pay for the money and go to the difficulty of getting DNA tests that give the results that we suspect, it's a resource issue, a logistics issue. Yeah, of course it is. To some extent, I guess that local journalists don't have to worry about that. It's just, it's just more interesting headlines and reports for them, which provides talking points. I'm okay with it being a talking point as well, because I think that's part of the wonderment and slow realisation that we can have as a nation, you know, locally and nationally, about the subject as well. I think it's all heartening. It directs how the topic evolves, really, doesn't it, and what it becomes next. And, you know, the the news industry is, is absolutely pivotal in that, really, because I guess we introduce a lot of the topics, or we certainly introduce them to a much wider audience. Yeah, yeah. And I thought the way the Derbyshire Press actually reported the thermal footage that Don obtained was very reasonable, very responsible and very good, actually. And and we didn't want to sort of go with it. We didn't take it to the press. The press sort of found it. And of course, you expect that to happen if it's half decent as a story and there's a bit of footage. So, But then, of course, you get parasitic type of journalism. But again, that's the world we live in, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to go over a lot, that, that parasitic effect. It's a very good way of putting it. Because, you know, we can put something out as responsibly as we want to, but we're not responsible for what happens after that and how it's twisted and swept along and, and developed into something that it's not. Not all squeaky clean as an industry, but actually we do care because we do consider our reputation in everything we do. And we don't want to be seen to be sensationalising and things because we'll take that any complaint to heart. It is quite demoralising when you see things pillaged and then turned into 
something rather rather awful when we put our heart and soul into it for a few days or so. The other thing I, I would say, and you're an example of this, Tristan was an example of it, and there are others, reporters that through their career stay with the subject. I think it's so important that that happens and because you then want to represent it well, you want to make sure you've done your homework properly on the story because you understand it. It's often more difficult when somebody like me or one of my contacts who's, who's an investigator who's prepared to talk to the press and they're dealing with a journalist who's quite fresh on the subject who doesn't quite know the right sort of nuances and angles to take. People who've got experience are so important. So it's good that we have this ongoing relationship with journalists, actually. I think there's two ways of looking at that, because actually a good journalist should be able to lay their hands to any topic and quickly develop a knowledge base and, and a picture of the topic that's sufficient to help them report on it in, a, in an authoritative way. However, I also think it's the mark of a good editor to recognise interest fields and, and talents and particular skill sets in a team of reporters. So if it's a topic that comes along, it doesn't have to be a big cats, it could be anything. I'm also interested in cars and weather. And the editor should pick out the reporter that's got that interest and so that they can they can direct them to a person and actually start to put that person at ease a lot quicker because the person that you're interviewing suddenly thinks, oh yeah, actually kind of knows this stuff. Okay, let's have this discussion then. And, you know, I will be a bit more open, whatever, yeah. Those of us who've got special interest in the subject, we need that long-term rapport with journalists ourselves. Public communication is absolutely crucial. So journalists have a crucial role in that. So that uh, relationship is um, is fundamental. So look forward to uh, keeping it with you and others. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for all you've covered on this. I think we've learned a lot about uh, the media world as a result of it and, and very important more generally as well as beyond big cats. But is there anything finally you'd like to say or emphasise that we haven't covered or touched on? I didn't tell you the story when I got hoaxed, uh, which was a little quirky one. Oh, go for it. Yeah, we've just had April the 1st. I mean, we're on. We're talking on April the 4th. I mean, I hang my head in shame, and, and I don't mind sharing it, but I, I still hang my head in shame because I should have spotted it. And it was one of the flurries. There's probably been three, maybe four flurries, as I call them, of reports. And I was taking what seemed like another phone call about another sighting, and they'd sent me a video. I think it might have been on email in those days. And grainy little video, but pretty compelling, pretty good. It looked excellent. And so I rang the editor and I, he said, yeah, get your teeth into it. Let's see what we can get out of it. And the first thing I did was go to this contact I had. I'd pretty much got a story ready and I was just sort of getting his quotes to give the story a bit of authority and see what he thought. And he said straight away, yeah, you've been had on this one. This is an old viral video. And I just couldn't believe I hadn't seen it because I'd done so much research on it. And there wasn't actually a lot of substance to go at in those days. There was a pretty narrow field of content to, to look at. And, and how I hadn't spotted this video before and didn't recognize it, but I got all excited and hot under the color and gone straight to the editor. And yes, it turned out to be a hoax. And the, the funny thing was, though, that the people that had sent this video, one of them was the owner of... I won't mention it, but it was quite a high-profile business, an events business. He had just left it with me and said, we saw this, thought we should let you know, blah, blah, blah. So I went back to him. And I wasn't sure how to handle it at first, but I suddenly decided what I might do is turn it into a story about this high-profile businessman trying to hoax the local paper and um, the fact that I caught him out in the hoax. And so I thought I'll, I'll approach this topic with him and see what feedback he'd give me, what, what sort of comment he'd give me. 
because obviously I wanted to give him a right reply. And he just, he was absolutely mortified. I was just speaking to him rather than him and his friend who'd sent it. And he possibly might have been inebriated when he sent it and just sort of done it as a dare or something. I don't know. I uh, got this very sheepish apology and he sort of offered me tickets for the as a giveaway in the paper and, you know, whatever I wanted and blah, blah, blah. blah. He was just, he was terribly, terribly embarrassed about the reputational harm it might do to him to be trying to hoax the local paper. I mean, obviously, I, I caught him out, but not through any of my own doing. I had to be guided in this. Otherwise, I, if I hadn't checked it, I probably would have just gone with the story, which would have been really embarrassing because somebody else would have, I'm sure, spotted it. At the end of the day, it didn't get out and your counter challenge to him didn't get out either. Is that right? No, I, I, I canned it in the end because I wasn't going to gain anything, really. I mean, he was he was a high-profile businessman and it would have been a quirky little story. But I thought, you know, because I needed to work with his business apart from anything else on, on future stories, I thought, yeah, let's keep it sweet. And I figured in, in my head, he'll always owe me one. And actually, the business has been really good to me in the past with stories and exclusives and things. So, yeah, it worked out fine. But it was a close call for me because I was ignorant enough to get swept along by it. But I think that, that just spacks of the excitement that you get when you get a really good piece of evidence. And you'll, you'll relate to that perfectly, I'm sure, Rick. Yeah, yeah. It gives you a buzz. And I thought, you know, I've got a brilliant story. After such a flurry of stories, and a lot of them just being little reports of, oh, I saw this while I was walking the dog, you know. And that wasn't an April the 1st one. No, it wasn't at all. No, it was nowhere near April. It was just, I think it was two guys, probably had a drink, had a bit of a dare, let's ping an email off, see if we can get this uh, hoax in the local paper. Why not? I was probably a similar age and I'd have probably done a similar thing. I'm always alert to April the 1st as a potential banana skin, whether people try it on. And I would say the last few years it's gone I think it's dried up. I think people have thought, well, it's it's so obvious that we might try an April the 1st spoof on Big Cat, the Big Cat topic. You know, people are so looking out for it, it's not worth doing. But what does happen sometimes is on April the 1st, I will get what seems to be a credible report and an email comes through. In fact, one person did say, you know, I know it's April the 1st, but please, this is honestly real. Yeah. It's not a good date on which to make your witness report. There's that edgy question about, oh gosh, you know, and I had one and it was actually five to midnight, just gone, you know, three days ago on uh, April the 1st. And it very credible. And I did respond, hopefully by now I can suss, you know, a credible report largely. Occupational hazard. Yeah. So good to talk to you. Thanks ever so much for relating all this to us and for coming on the podcast and I hope we can speak to more journalists in the future because I think they're such a key part of the subject it's great we've had two in a row so thanks ever so much for coming on Big Cat Conversations really enjoyed speaking to you it's my pleasure absolutely my pleasure thank you